Kia ora and a very big welcome to this, the first podcast in our exciting series, People, Places and the Climate Crisis, in which we will be interviewing 16 outstanding climate specialists in the course of studying the lead-up to the local government elections in October. I'm Lindsay Wood, I'm from the Resilience Climate Trust, and in conjunction with Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access radio station, we are bringing you this amazing series, both as a series of podcasts, as mentioned, and then also um, as a series of radio shows, which are compressed into two interviews per show with a total of nine episodes. Shortly, we'll be listening to our first interview with the Minister of Climate Change, the Honourable James Shaw. But I do first want to spend a couple of minutes running through what's an amazing set of themes that we've got for the rest of the series. So counting this introduction, we've got nine themes. And after the launch today with the Honourable James Shaw and also Professor Susan Crumdike, who's the Professor and Chair of Energy Transition at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, that will be on the next podcast. Then we also have the following week, Visualising the Future, Championing Change. And we have two interviews there with Professor James Renwick from Victoria University of Wellington, Climate Change Commissioner and an IPCC lead author. And then we have another interview with Sophie Hanford, the articulate and high energy young woman who led the Fridays for the Future marches in 2019 and is now a councillor on the Kapiti Coast District Council. On the 4th of July, we will have an interview exclusively with Emeritus Professor Pat Bodger on energy and climate resilience. Then that is followed by looking at the built environment, urban form and transport in a climate context. And we have there Sam Archer from the New Zealand Green Building Council and Professor Rafe Chapman from Victoria University. On the 18th of July, we'll have Making the Regional Economy Less Vulnerable to Climate. Now that has a bit of a Nelson focus, but it will apply to other regions as well. And our two wonderful guests there are Ali Boswick, who's the CEO of the Nelson Chamber of Commerce, and Rod Oram, who's an acclaimed business and climate journalist, who also will be well known to listeners. Following that is Regenerating Nature with Dr. Simon Stewart of the Cawthron Institute and another Simon, Simon Miller, who's Executive Director of Pure Advantage, the Green Business Organisation, and he's a champion of Aotearoa's natural advantages. On the 8th of August, we will be looking at a just transition and social cohesion, so important in a climate sense. And the people that will be joining us for that will be interviews with Dr. Joanna Santa Barbara, who's got a remarkable pedigree and currently is the chair of the Nelson Tasman Climate Forum, and Penny Molner, QSM, who is a foundation of numerous social um, organizations which have a very close relationship to that theme. In closing, towards the end, we have a, a session called Joining the Dots on Climate, Everything is Connected. And the people joining us for that will be Miriana Stevens, who is the director of Wakatu Corporation and was deeply involved in the development of the wonderful Titauihu intergenerational strategy that was developed and published a couple of years ago. And Dr. Olivia Hyatt, who's got a PhD in geology and climate 
and is very active in a range of climate organisations. And then the final episode in this information series, So What Does All This Mean?, is an interview with Professor Bronwyn Hayward, who is an IPCC lead author and is also a leading researcher in sustainable development, youth and in climate change issues. And on that note, let's enjoy the pre-recorded interview with the Honourable James Shaw. It's a very special honour to be able to welcome the Minister of Climate Change, James Shaw, to open this ambitious series of Climate Matters, focusing on climate change and local government in the lead up to the local body elections. This is also a wonderful way to set the scene for interviews with an outstanding lineup of 15 climate experts. Tenakoi Minister, a warm welcome and thanks so much for fitting us into your busy schedule, especially while you're in the throes of adaptation plans and emission reduction plans and no doubt post-budget strategies. Tenakoi, thanks very much for having me. You're very welcome. It's our honour. While I do have some specific questions that I wish to put to you, I'd first like to invite you to share the top climate issues or strategies you hope that in the lead up to the local government elections, candidates will be advocating for as they look to win over the voting public. Uh, well, I think the clue is in that um, that last bit of your question around winning over the voting public. Um, I, I think that many of the things that we need to do, particularly at a local government level, in order to reduce our emissions and to build resilience to the effects of climate change that are already locked in, also happen to be things that can help to uh, lower the cost of living, improve um, the kind of physical environment that people um uh, live in, whether it's their home or their town or their city, uh, make getting around easier and so on. And, you know, the old saying about sell the sizzle, not the sausage. Yes. I, I think it's really important for those of us who are running for elected office, you know, at local government level, at central government level, to communicate how taking action on climate change will make people's lives materially better. And, and so I think that the kind of range of policies around kind of more livable streets, more walkable cities, warmer homes, you know, the kinds of things that local authorities actually have quite a lot of influence over mm-hmm. are things that actually make people's lives better. Excellent. They're, they're classic co-benefits in climate jargon, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yes. Although if I was a uh, going out and campaigning, I'd try not to use the phrase Kobe. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Okay, well, we'll we'll pass that on to candidates as well. Thank you. I'm I'm now going to ask a question which is in a bit of a, a pet area of mine because I've got a bit of a background in cost management and construction, and it's it's aimed at uh, cost issues, if you like. You'll know better than I do how often proposed climate strategies are opposed on the grounds of, quotes, costing too much or, quotes, not being economic. Yet these are rarely compared with the crucial cost of not doing enough and are also mostly tacitly treated as just short-term costs. What approach do you suggest councillors adopt in grappling with that sort of resistance to instigating robust climate strategies? Well, I think that the the Climate Change Commission, at a very high level, when they gave us their report in May of last year, did look at the kind of what they thought taking action on climate change would cost the country. And it was essentially a a slowing in the rate of GDP increase. So not an actual reduction, but just a a 
kind of a, a drag on the on the rate of increase by about one percent over thirty years. They then compared it to the cost of doing nothing, and it was and the cost of doing something costs about half as much as the cost of doing nothing. Yeah. Um, the problem that you've got, of course, is that uh, the specific investments that we're making fall on present day rather than on the future, and they fall on whether it's kind of property developers or councils or, or who don't then see the benefit of avoided cost in the future on a, on a kind of a more general basis. So one of the things I think that councils can do uh, is to talk to their, their council's treasury departments, okay. who you know, their finance functions are, about uh, things like depreciation rates and uh, whole of life cost. Uh, value rather than cost, mm. and and that thinking is slowly starting to seep its way through uh, the treasury and central government thinking, but it's not yet widely adopted. And we've we've been putting you know quite a lot of pressure on on treasury to to move on some of these things for a few years now, and you're starting to see some movement. But I think it would be helpful for councils you know to kind of actively engage with their officials who are in those functions to say, well, look. Yes, the upfront cost of this building might be, I don't know, 10, 20% more than uh, one that's not climate resilient or is energy uh, um, inefficient or, or whatever have you. But over the lifetime of, of that building, you'll make your money back kind of several times over. And so then the question really is a financing question. Um, it's, it's how do you sort of realise some of that future benefit today in a way that makes it economic to, to, to make that investment upfront? Of course, most councils are long-run investors, right? The buildings that they own or the infrastructure that they own is around for decades and decades and decades. Sure. Um, uh, unlike commercial uh, property developers, you know, who kind of make it with a specific intention of moving it off, off their books within about seven years or so, if it doesn't have a payback in three to five years, then, then it, it's not really in their interests. Councils actually operate to a different imperative. And, and so then the question is, is if given that they are these long-run owners uh, of buildings and infrastructure, what are the ways that you can start to uh, realise that amortisation of cost over time? Sure. No, that's great because that ties together the whole issue of – I really with on the same page as you with regard to value rather than cost, and also the issue of over time is so important, isn't it? Um, I often think in my arena of the construction industry, a very small example is – you pay more for insulation at the beginning and then you're on a win from then on, aren't you? You are. But the, the problem that we've got is is structural. So everyone says, well, why wouldn't you insulate your building? And it's because the person who's building the building is a different person from the person who pays the energy yeah. bills. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the incentive for a property developer is to keep their costs as low as possible, whereas the incentive for the leaseor of that building uh, is to... Uh, reduce their energy costs, mm. and, and so you've got a you've got a problem, a, a classic sort of split incentives problem. And and in an arena where we've got a housing affordability crisis, front loading the cost a little bit more is not an attractive thing for the client, even if they do know that down the track they're going to recoup things. That's great, thank you. Um, I want to jump tack a little bit now, if I may. During the COVID lockdowns, we got used to the Prime Minister's team of five million. Everybody knew about that. And I've often thought how good it would be to motivate the same team on the climate journey, even if that has a very different risk profile and a very different time frame. This, in a local body sense, then invites the question around public education 
at a community level. What do you see as the roles of councils in promoting community climate awareness and readiness? And also, what of the place of organisations like the wonderful Nelson Tasman Climate Forum that you launched a couple of years ago here where I am in Nelson? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think that the that forum in particular is one of the best examples in the country of essentially a citizen-led, very kind of grassroots, bottom-up uh, approach. Um, and I think it would be great for councils to uh, resource more of those kinds of things around the country. They'll be pleased I, to hear I, that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, I think kind of part of the issue is that, uh, you, you know, both central and local government tend to think of public education and communication as a one-way street where we tell you what the information is in a way where we're trying to influence your behaviour. Mm. Um, actually, uh, I think it needs to work the other way around, uh, where by thinking of people more as citizens rather than as consumers, um, we say, well, how do we empower uh, these kind of self-directed um, groups of people to develop collective solutions to climate change and to work with and inform each other. Mm. And I think that's a far more resilient and far more um, uh, successful approach over the long term than just kind of broadcast communications and ad campaigns, which has sort of been the go-to of both local and central government. Yes, and, and that also helps citizens take an element of ownership of the solutions as well, doesn't it? Well, entirely, and I, I think that's completely critical because I, th I don't think we're going to get any movement at all unless people feel that they have some kind of stake in it themselves. Mm, sure. Well, we're drawing to an end here, Minister, um, but this radio and podcast series has a fabulous lineup of other guests over the coming weeks. If we think of our listenership at the moment, hopefully listening to those other episodes, what would be a single take-home message that you'd like them to have in their in their hearts as they engage with future episodes? Is there a, a particular state of mind or state of feeling that you'd like people to carry with them as they pick up further information? We can do this. Great. <laughs> That's it. I mean, I think, you know, I could say a lot about that, but, but I know that a lot of people have a sort of a general sense of despair over the uh, kind of state of things and, and the trend and with quite good reason, right? The, the the data that we see and receive suggests that things that haven't yet turned around. But we also know that we've got the tools, we've got the technology, we've, we know what policy mixes are going to work. Uh, what we just need is the will collectively to make them, ha make them happen. And so I think that sense of empowerment that... Our, our, our collective action through the political domain at local government and at central government level and through our communities and our sports groups and our churches and our businesses and so on um, can make a tremendous difference uh, in, in a, actually a remarkably short period of time. We just need to apply ourselves. We can do this. What a wonderful slogan for it. That's great. And a great answer. Thank you. Well, Danakoi Minister, many thanks for launching our series today and for also all the things that you do in the climate space, which I know sometimes must feel like you're, you're battling people who should be your friends. So kia ora and thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Lindsay. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, what a privilege to have the Minister open our series with an interview where he shared his insights into many of the issues that relate to local government and climate. 
As I mentioned at the beginning, I will give you how you can get more information on the series if you go to the Resilience website www.resilience.co.nz and then you will find links that take you straight to other pages with podcast details on them, including links to the Fresh FM website and the frequencies that they are broadcasting on. The next um, podcast will be Professor Susan Crumdike, as mentioned, and then we will carry on with two podcasts per week over the next several weeks until the local government elections on October the 8th this year. Thank you very much for your company. I hope we enjoy it again. And kia kaha for the climate.